1: There's a rise in hate speech online. Bullying is a growing problem. We have divided governments, and sometimes it may feel like we're surrounded by hate. Joining us today to talk about how we can stop the proliferation of hate is Matthew Williams, founder and director of Hate Lab and a professor of criminology. Matthew is regarded as one of the world's foremost experts in hate crime and hate speech. He advises and has conducted research for TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Google, the Ministry of Justice, and the U.S. Department of Justice. Matthew's research has appeared in numerous documentaries, radio and television programs, and on Amazon and Netflix. He's the author of the book, The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate, and What We Can Do to Stop It. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh, Thank you for having me.
1: So, Matthew, it feels like we are constantly being bombarded with hate. Do you think we're seeing an increase in hate speech and bullying, or are we just more sensitized to it?
2: Well, the argument I make in the book is that due to various factors like social media and the extent to which social media is unregulated, that we that we are seeing more hate now and polarization than than ever before. But one of the key problems, of course, when you study this subject scientifically like I do, is the fact that it's kind of hard to measure these kinds of things. So it's really hard to measure online hate speech because... The tech giants don't really give you that much information on how much there is and how much they've removed. And it's really hard to actually measure hate crime on the streets as well. So, for example, it might surprise you to hear that in the U.S. Uh, in 2021, there are around about 7,000 hate crimes recorded by police agencies. but about 150,000 uh, hate crimes recorded by the, uh, the U.K. government. And that's a ridiculously huge difference. But it doesn't really mean that there's, you know, there's more hate crime in the UK or that the UK is more intolerant than the US. It just means that we're measuring it very differently from, from you folks. Um, and that's a major problem for us in the study of hatred in a scientific way is actually how you measure it. But the main, the main issue that I take up in the book is the fact that new communications technologies have accelerated hate to, to new heights.
1: Well, and I can understand that because we're giving a forum for people to express their feelings. But do you think that there's something happening within us as human beings? I mean, when I grew up, I was always taught, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So why do you think we as humans feel that we have this permission, I guess, to just say these hateful things?
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And I, and I do ascribe this more and more so down to social media, really, and, and, and the birth of the Internet in the mid-90s. Um, you know, I started studying the Internet back in the 90s, and one of the very first things I encountered was harassment and hate speech back then. And mm-hmm. that sparked my interest in in trying to understand why people were doing this online more and more. One of the key reasons, and this is this is a psychological perspective on this, is called disinhibition. Um, when we use the internet we identify that there's a, a distance between us and the people that we're speaking to. And that distance kind of frees people up to say things that they wouldn't say, say down a local bar or, or in a local community centre to another person that might be a bit different from them for some reason or they might treat with suspiciousness. And that distance that's Produced that psychological feeling of distance on the internet creates this this opportunity to voice things that you would not normally say in good company offline. Um, one of the things I would say is that i don 't argue that the likes of Zuckerberg and, and and the dorseys and those that set up these big social media companies knew that this would happen. I think they, they set out with the, with the agenda of creating a more tolerant and inclusive society. They thought that the more contact you create between strangers, the more that you break down barriers and negative stereotypes and the more you create a social harmony. Um, and, and, you know, actually, there is science that backs that up called the contact hypothesis that was developed uh, in the 1950s in the U.S. Um, and unfortunately, uh, what the tech giants forgot in, in their endeavors to grow and, and, and get bigger, bigger platforms and profits is that that contact has to be positive contact to create that more tolerant uh, society. What's happening is that we're seeing more negative contact than positive, unfortunately. And that then gets reinforced by, what are known as their engagement algorithms, the algorithms that are designed to push far more salacious and extreme content in our way because they know it keeps us engaged for longer. And the longer we're on the platform, uh, the more money they can make from advertising to us. It's an unfortunate situation that mm-hmm. things like hate are sticky. We call them, the, the, we call them sticky. They, they, they draw our attention. It's like when you're driving past a car accident. You don't want to look. But you always take that final last glance as you pass past that accident. You didn't want to look, but you just couldn't stop yourself. It's the same with hate speech and, and more extreme content on social media. They know that it catches our attention. So the engagement algorithms that learn this um, through various sort of online uh, technical techniques um, essentially means that hate becomes profitable, unfortunately, and The only way to break that cycle is to turn off those engagement algorithms. And to turn them off would cost a lot of money to these big, big companies.
1: Mm -hmm. And everything you say makes so much sense, Matthew, because when you're going to say something hurtful and you're you're behind a computer screen with a keyboard, you don't have to look at someone's face and see the pain in their eyes or see the, you know, what it is you're inflicting upon that person. And I always say to myself, I would hate To be a teenager today, because I remember growing up, if you went to school and and you were bullied or someone said something unkind to you, you could go home and kind of turn it off for a number of hours before you had to go back and face it again. But today it's incessant. It comes at you 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. And and I think that's why hate is more insidious. Now, I think the impact of it on us and our families, our children, our, our friends and our loved ones is more extreme because it is a 24 7 phenomenon it, it's it's you think about bullying in the school playground um you know that used to be confined in my day and your day it was when we were kids in school that was confined to the walk in and the walk home uh, from school and maybe in the school playground today kids are suffering it 24 7 the sanctity of the home has been eroded by the prevalence of technology now i agree that technology is a wonderful thing and it brought us amazing advancements Across the board in, in, in economy, in medicine, uh, in in sociality, you know, it it is, there are strong benefits to having this technology. But what we've done in the rapid, in the rapid, uh, uh, um, sort of desire to grow and get there quicker, we've forgotten about the safeguarding elements. and, And now we're playing catch up and governments are playing catch up, trying to backtrack and trying to figure out how we retrofit and fix. The technologies to make our, our kids and our loved ones safer, but yeah, the the insidiousness of hate is is all the more pervasive today. And one of the one of the things I one of the thought experiments I tell my students sometimes is imagine if, if Joseph Goebbels had social media back in the Second World War, and and, and what damage could have been done uh, in terms of sort of propagating false narratives, mis and disinformation, and division using this technology. It would be terrifying. I mean, it was terrifying back then, uh, and there's, there's, there's not much that compares to it. But to imagine if they had this technology back then, how much worse it could have been is a terrifying thought.
1: So what you just spoke about, there being money and negativity and hate, we know that the people that have the power who are making the money aren't going to do anything about this. So what can we do what, as individuals and as parents? What can we do to solve the problem for ourselves?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question and it's uh, it's one that I always wrestle with. I think I think this problem is so huge that we need a multi-pronged approach. So I think we definitely need social media companies to, to stand up and take a bit more responsibility. And I think they're starting to do that, although they, they're not doing enough, because, as, as you said, it, it, will, it can damage their profits. They won't turn off those engagement algorithms. Um, policing has to take this more seriously. I think, you know, um, sheriff's departments down the country in the U.S. and, and uh, down the country in the U.K. and across the world, police have to take online hate speech a bit more seriously than they're currently doing. Governments have to put in place legislation to make sure the police have the powers then to regulate this stuff. But ultimately I think where we'll see the most change is in users. But me, you, our kids, everyone else that uses social media if we stand up and we start regulating that space ourselves, if we become upstanders against hate instead of bystanders then I think we'll start to see rapid change. And we have to do this in a safe way. I'm not suggesting that listeners go in and wade into an argument and and create even more hate speech by by going in without any careful thought and consideration. I think this can be done safely. And the book actually details how you can engage in what we call counter speech in a safe way online. Um, But if we do it en masse, if we do it as a crowd, if we, you know, the tens of thousands of millions of social media users on the bigger platforms... Then we'll see, uh, uh, likely see a rapid change. And some experimentation we've done in my lab actually proves that that's the case. So when a person who's spreading hate speech is basically approached by uh, a witness or an onlooker um, that sees it and is challenged in some way, then they actually start to change their behaviour. Not everyone does, you know. There are some people who are too hardened to this, they're too far gone that, that won't change their behaviors. But a good sizable proportion will. Uh, The evidence suggests about 30% of people who are targeted with hate speech will change their behaviours and for a good while. So having individuals like ourselves on the ground... We become the first responders effect- effectively to hate speech when we see it. We can do this really quickly, much more quickly than, say, policing can or governments can or even platforms can. And if we get in there at the right time and take responsibility for the environment that we've created, because it is at the end of the day, social media is made up of us. Without us, it's nothing. Then we can start to see some real change. So what I really do in the book at the end is call, is, is give out this call to action. It's a manifesto for change really it's arguing that we need to take responsibility for this as well as governments police and the big platforms
1: i think also matthew it would require us to take a a hard look at ourselves as human beings what type of person do we want to be and and really police our own behavior ask ourselves is this something i should say will this hurt another person and you know really start to look within and try to figure out why we feel that need to say something so hurtful
2: yeah, I, I, that's a really important point. Uh, the, in the book, I argue that we're all prejudiced. Um, there, there is no person on this planet, I will argue, that doesn't have a prejudice. Um, the reason for that is because we're brought up in a culture that is in itself prejudiced in multiple ways. It has a preference for certain groups of people, um, and there are other groups that uh, suffer because of that. Um, It may be some of it benign, some of it a bit more malignant and a bit more harmful. But because we grow up in that culture and as kids, you know, it's really difficult uh, to basically say what does go into your brain and what does not go into your brain when you're when you're observing things on television and you're reading books and you're being taught by teachers and so on and your friends and family. You will get a certain version of the world told told to you by those sources and inevitably it's a biased picture. And it was certainly more biased when we were growing up. I, I don't know uh, what decades you would call your formative years, but I grew up in the 80s uh, and and um, it was a pretty biased time. You know, it, it's not like it is now. It was still biased now, but it was worse back then. And you know, I grew up in that culture and that culture had its way with me. I, I remember, for example, pondering of whether or not I should, I should come out as a gay man um, in my late 20s. And one of the main reasons I stayed in the closet for so long is because I had what I can only describe as internalized homophobia.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I was a bit prejudiced against gay people because of the culture that I'd grown up in. Um, I grew up in the midst of the HIV epidemic. Um, there were, uh, in the UK, Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister at the time, had introduced something called Section 28 that forbid teachers from talking about homosexuality in schools. Um, so, you know, you had no one to talk to about this stuff. And it was a culture of fear and intimidation. And, of course, that had its way with me. And I was terrified about coming out as a homosexual because I just thought that my family would disown me and that, that my life would be ruined. Um, that wasn't the case. I did come out and every, everyone accepted me, which is fantastic. But for a long time, i knew i had this kind of form of internalized homophobia and that's an interesting observation if we if we can think of a of a person who is gay also thinking in in in, in potentially homophobic ways that tells you a lot about how culture play has has its way with you when you're you're actually uh, uh, social being socialized as you're an adult so you're right we all have to take a long hard look at ourselves to identify what kinds of prejudices that we actually have and then start to challenge those.
1: You talk about everyone having some form of prejudice. And I do think that there's a lot of self-reflection that's required. But if someone is a victim of a hate crime, what is your best advice for that person? What can he or she do to try to find help or to even just mitigate the personal damage that's done?
2: Yes. I mean, The the personal damage can be very significant. Um, As as a victim myself, I I went through the psychological trauma of of being a victim of a hate crime. It changed my professional life and my personal life. Um, That was a key motivation for writing the book and a key motivation for for studying criminology and criminal justice um, just to figure out why I was targeted uh, um, about 20 years ago. And each Each person's decision in terms of whether or not they they report it uh, and how they deal with that victimisation is very personal. Um, I would argue that no matter what you think about the police in your local area, you should report it if you if you feel safe to do so. I know different areas have different problems and relationships between groups in certain communities in the states. And, uh, policing is fraught with, with contention. Um, that's totally understandable. But I would argue that you should always report it. Uh, for, even if it's just to get that statistic, uh, out there and, and sent up to, to the FBI, uh, when they do their annual accounting. Because the more that we can see hate crimes on record, the more that the government will do about it and the more money will be put into protecting people from hate crime Um, so I would always say report it if it's online I would definitely report it to the platform so Twitter, Meta uh, TikTok, whoever it might be that's your first port of call Uh, they will usually respond within 24 to 14 hours Um, that's the typical response time that they give, they'll give you a decision on whether or not they think that the the hate speech broke their policies or not and they may as a response suspend the user who sent it um, if if you don't get any joy with that then you could uh, potentially report that online hate speech to the police whether or not they'll take it seriously is another matter uh, I know in the United States for example the laws are not as Stringent as they are in the u k in the u k we have very stringent laws on hate speech um, uh, while we do also protect freedom of expression uh, but in the u s it's, it's the, the laws on hate speech are a bit weaker unfortunately from my understanding and my perspective so it 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 does feel to some victims i think in the u s that that sometimes no one 's listening mm-hmm. and that to actually actually get anyone to listen um is very difficult indeed um what what we've done in our research is actually find that sharing this news with with family members and loved ones is also equally as important to get that emotional support that you need post victimization um sharing it with parents sharing it with siblings um or whoever else you're connected with in your on, on your wider circle of friends sharing the experience is really important when i was attacked I didn't tell anybody for a good week or so. Um, and then I did eventually uh, I tell friends and, and they came to my aid and I had a lot of support and I needed that. So I didn't realize I needed it as much as I did at the time, but I did. And it, it really did help. So sharing the experience is really important. There are also some really great support groups out there. Um, so, for example... Up and down the u s there are many many great support groups that that uh, are a great um, giving advice on, on victimization and any any aspect of of victimization uh, to to groups of individuals who are routinely victimized so for example during covid uh, nineteen um, there was a spate of anti Asian hate crimes across the world, not only just the states but we had it in the u k and Australia and other parts of the world also saw the numbers of hate crimes against that population increase dramatically. And there were some great organizations out there that were supporting that community and trying to get their message out there. This was a major problem.
1: Matthew, if, if someone believes that he or she may be a victim of a hate crime, but doesn't really understand what a hate crime is, can you give us a definition or, or explain what one looks like so that he or she would know that it would be time yes. to take action?
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's a tough one. It is, it is difficult because the legislation in the U.S. differs by state. Um, there are na- there are national bits of legislation, you know, at the, at the federal level that that apply, but only in the most serious and grievous, grievous of cases. Um, in terms of the state level, it varies by state, so it can get very confusing. And I appreciate that most victims may not be aware, but the general the general tenet is. That you're being targeted because of who you are, so it, it can be any kind of crime. It can be theft. It can be violence. It it, it can be uh, any kind of criminal act. Um, but if you feel that you've been targeted because of your identity, that identity can be race, religion, sexual orientation, disability, transgender identity, and so on, um, then there's a chance that that would count as a hate crime. If they if the police can prove that that perpetrator genuinely targeted you or the group of people that you're with because of your difference or a characteristic of your identity, then, then that would count as a hate crime in most states in the US. There are a couple of states where the legislation still isn't great. Um, but for most states now, uh, the legislation would, would mean that what happens in those situations where an identity is the main motivator for an attack would be classed as a hate crime.
1: Are you hopeful that we'll be able to turn this around?
2: I have to be. I, I don't think I'd be able to do this job if I thought that there wasn't hope, like at the end of the tunnel, there wasn't hope somewhere in the narrative. I, I, I don't have children myself, but I've got nieces and nephews and they between the ages of, of four and 12. And I look at them and I look at the culture that they're growing up in now. It's not perfect but it's certainly very different from the 70s and the 80s when we grew up in that culture. Um, they're far more tolerant, they're far more accepting, they're far more open-minded than, than the generations before them. So when I look into the future, I see them as adults, and I can see them being much less hateful than than uh, uh, folks that grew up in our generation. And I just think it's because society has become somewhat more civilized, Um, even though when we read the news day in, day out, it sometimes doesn't feel that way. Um, On the whole, on that macro level, when you take that kind of 10,000-foot view from above and you look at the developments um, in, so the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the trans rights movement that we're seeing right now, um, I think that... The future is brighter than it is right now. And, and I have to believe in that because ultimately, yeah, I think it, I, would, I would go insane if I, I couldn't think like that. And what, uh, one bit of empirical evidence I think is really good to know is that when we look at hate speech online, and a lot of this stuff is happening online, only around about 1% or less than 1% of the communications or the posts that we see on Twitter and Facebook and so on are hateful. It's, it's a tiny number compared to all communications on these social media platforms, very, very, very small. So that's really a positive thing. It's, it's important to know that, that for the most part, most of the conversations that we're, we're hearing online and witnessing online are decent conversations. They're not all polarizing and they're not all hateful. Um, and I think it's important to keep hold of that, to, to understand that ultimately, um, people at their core are decent. The majority of people are decent.
1: The book is The Science of Hate, How Prejudice Becomes Hate and What We Can Do to Stop It. Matthew, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your work?
2: Ah, uh, Yeah, uh, listeners can go to thescienceofhate.com. That's thescienceofhate.com.
1: Matthew, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Ah, Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: That's bestpathforme.com.
3: Are you a hardworking, high-achieving, independent, successful woman, but there's one area in your life where you really want to be successful and it just hasn't happened yet? I'm Odette Coronel, Certified Life and Relationship Coach. I work with women just like you. I can help you create a long-lasting, meaningful, satisfying relationship with your life partner by using my signature life method and reigniting the spark within you. Visit odettecoronel.com and book a free session with me today.
1: If disorganization negatively affects your quality of life on a daily basis and you're ready to get help, call Let's Get Organized. We serve clients living with chronic disorganization caused by ADHD, anxiety, or depression. Either on-site or virtually, we help you clear the clutter, create and maintain simple systems, and show you how getting organized will change your life. Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit cyacyl.com slash mediatraining. us to talk about what veterans can do to improve their mental health and well-being is Dr. Chris Loftus, the National Director for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome, Dr. Loftus. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me on.
1: So, doctor, how prevalent are mental health problems among veterans?
4: They are fairly common. They, of course, can vary depending upon the age, circumstance,
1: experiences they went to. What are some of the common issues veterans face?
4: veterans can struggle with a variety of disorders from PTSD substance abuse depression um but they can also struggle with a lot of life style and the circumstances, you know, with the breakup of relationships, the difficulty finding jobs when they get out of the military, or for older veterans transitioning into retirement and a variety of chronic health issues. So, I mean, I think there's a range of things, but what we want to make sure we're talking about with veterans is if they're struggling, how they can get help
1: Doctor, what are some of the signs that a veteran or his or her family should pay attention to that might indicate that there is a more severe problem occurring?
4: Yeah, the key is to look for significant changes in behavior or mood. If you notice that a loved one is quick to anger or withdrawing from family members and friends, or if you yourself feel irritated to have nightmares, flashbacks, or experience trouble sleeping and concentrating, that's a sign that it might be time to reach out. Another sign could be drinking more or misusing drugs. And veterans may also be struggling if they're just not living their fullest life or they are avoiding regular activities that they typically enjoy. These are all signs that it might be time to reach out, start the conversation, and explore or options for help. It's really helpful for some veterans who don't know how to talk about what they're going through or maybe don't understand it to listen to other veterans talk about their experience. They can find inspiration in that. They can relate to that and they can find the language and how to talk about what they're going through.
1: Doctor, what's the takeaway?
4: Seeking help is the first step. If you are a friend or a family member of a veteran, simply checking in and asking how the veteran is doing can start that conversation. And if you yourself think you might be struggling dealing with a mental health challenge, talk to a family member or a friend or reach out to your local health care provider, someone in your local community, such as a veterans group or other kinds of groups, just get started connecting. Because... For some veterans, it takes a couple of attempts to find that right thing that's going to help you get well, but we just want to encourage you to take that one step today towards a happier, healthier life.
1: Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
4: you for having me.
1: We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book, so how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club.
0: WNYM Hackensack.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Narcissism is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit, but how much do we really know about it? Joining me today to talk about the complexities of this personality trait is Dr. W. Keith Campbell, author of the book, The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. Dr. Campbell uses the latest scientific research methods to dispel common myths and preconceptions and he provides insight into one of the most interesting psychological challenges of our time. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So, Doctor, we often hear people being described as a narcissist. What is the definition of a narcissist?
5: It's a great question because it means several different things. So when somebody says narcissist, um, often we're talking about, you know, some traits like selfishness or self-centeredness, maybe arrogance or... Um, so we, we we have something in mind, but but there's different meanings to this term. In uh, you know in the in the psychology world, we talk about narcissism as a trait, meaning that we all kind of have some level of narcissism. from people who are at the high end, to low end, and that trait of narcissism is a combination of a sense of entitlement and feeling you're better than others, sense of maybe superiority, but also charisma and extroversion and drive and charm and ambition. And so when you put those two things together, this combination of sort of entitlement and superiority, but also drive and ambition and charm, you get what we talk about as grandiose narcissism, which is this trait we're often we see with, you know, politicians and our bosses and bad relationships. And we, we kind of see this, this more grandiose form of narcissism in a lot of places. And, and that's usually what people are talking about, but there's two other forms of narcissism that come up a lot. One is a more vulnerable form, and so these are folks that are think they're, super, think they're superior to others, think they deserve special treatment, but they're also a little shy. Sometimes we talk about it as covert or basement narcissism because you don't really see it as apparently. and And they can be really insecure, so people who think they deserve special treatment but don't really get it and they end up in therapy quite often because of the depression anxiety goes with that and then finally we have this this psychiatric or clinical term called narcissistic personality disorder or npd and so this is the personality disorder that goes with narcissism and it's, it's a combination of a very high level of, of narcissism but also to make it a disorder it has to have some sort of impairment. It has to mess up your life. So if you're super narcissistic, you think you're awesome and it works for you and everyone agrees, it's not really a clinical disorder. But if you think you're awesome and it's ruining your marriage because you can't really love your family and it's ruining your work because you're, you know, being dishonest with your books or you're cheating people, uh, then it can be diagnosed as a disorder. So really, there's there's sort of three ways we use narcissism in the psych psychology world and that's what makes it so complicated when it gets into the you know the everyday world.
1: Doctor you have said that this is one of the greatest psychological challenges of our time. Has narcissism always been this prevalent or is there something in society that's driving it today?
5: Yes so narcissism is something that will emerge in societies when it's allowed to And when it's allowed to is when when you have a society that really focuses on individualism so that everybody does what they want and don't really focus so much on the community. And it happens in a society where you can get away with a lot, where you can present an image of yourself that might not be true. So imagine you live in a small town and you know everybody and somebody says that he's a big deal. You go, look, I, I went to school with you. You're not a big deal. It doesn't work. But in a, in a big urban center, if I move in there and start saying I'm a big deal and put on social media posts and, and build this brand, I can convince people I'm a big deal.
4: Mm-hmm. So we have
5: a world now where people who are narcissistic, who are self-promoting, who are self-enhancing can be very effective because you have to do it to survive. So right. I think we have a world that's really conducive to narcissism.
1: It is. It's a world on social media where everyone's trying to outdo each other. It's, you know, see me, see me. I have something to say. And and I can see how that would lead to the problem.
4: Oh, uh, yes, for
5: sure. It's and, and, you know, I don't mean to say, like, we're all doing this. I'm, I'm on social media right now. I'm on media right now uh, talking to you. And, and I hope people listen. So it's not that there's anything wrong with wanting to get attention. There's nothing wrong with social media. But for people who really are focused on getting attention, who are really interested in showing off how awesome they are, how much they know, or how they're smarter than you, or they want to criticize people all the time. Social media is really attractive to people like that. And in the research, we find people who are narcissistic just have more connections on social media in general, more friends, more followers, more likes. It it just works.
1: You had mentioned before that sometimes the person can't really love his or her family. Are they able to make strong emotional contact with another person? The reason I ask this, I believe that I was actually married to a narcissist. And the reason I believe that is, I think he was looking for a caregiver, someone who took care of him. And and when I changed the dynamics in our relationship, I did that for 23 years. When I finally said, what about me? and I needed something in return, he took his love. And the first thing he said was, I no longer love you. And so his love was attached to me performing an action that he needed. So when someone doesn't do what the narcissist needs, are they truly able to love?
5: That is am I, I, sorry uh, mm-hmm. for, for that experience. Um, but you're hitting on a really good point in that in our relationships, we're often interested in the, couple different things that compete with each other. One is we really want love, and love is often about giving things, you know, giving love, helping people, being nurturing and in turn being loved and being nurtured. And that's really important. And the other thing we want is somebody that, you know, maybe give us some status, pat us on the back, make us feel good, tell us we're, you know, good people, take care of us and make us better. And that's a great thing too. Uh, the challenge with narcissism is you get in a relationship and you're really focused on what you can get out of it, what you can extract from the other person. Do I, does my partner, is my partner attractive and does that make me look important or powerful or high in status? Does my partner tell me I'm awesome all the time to help me regulate my emotions so I always feel I'm good about myself? You know, does my partner defer her needs or his needs with work so that my work comes first? So what happens is you get all these conflicts where the narcissist and the relationship that's well, me first. And as long as, as long as me first happens, that's a great relationship for the narcissist. But when me first goes away, like in your case, it's not that important. And what you're telling me is that your partner said, you know, I'm, I don't love you anymore. Now that's shocking. And there's has an a loving relationship because it just doesn't work like that. You can't right. just turn it on and off. Right. Um, but you can if your love is, is basically a currency that you're giving to get something because it's, it's not that important to you. And it's very hard to understand that somebody can have a really awesome car and that car could be more important to that person than a loving relationship. But that happens sometimes.
1: And so then do these people have more difficulty feeling empathy or sympathy for another person?
5: Oh, for sure. It's just not as much in their in their language. So there is an idea and it's still around that people who are narcissistic and, and, you know, when you get to the more extremes, you're talking about psychopathy and, um, but when people are narcissistic that they can't feel love and they're incapable of doing that, it doesn't seem to be the case it's, for most people. There's a capacity for love, but it's an underdeveloped capacity because for people who are narcissistic, love is sort of secondary to ego needs, affection, attention, status, being awesome, being praised. All those things are more important than love. So they've spent their life figuring out how to get praised and positive feedback and attention and fame and status, but they haven't worked on that love muscle, that that capacity to connect with people because it's not as important so it's almost like they're uneven in in how they're developed
1: and i would assume then a person who is an unconditional giver who just gives of him or herself that would be someone who would you know be ripe for the picking for a narcissist so how can that person self-protect
5: that you are absolutely right um I wrote the book called *The New Science of Narcissism*, and the problem with that is there's always newer science. And, and after I wrote it, there was this recent paper came out that looked at people attracted to narcissists, and it's consistent with what we've seen. Is that what we've seen in the past is that people who fall in love very quickly, who fall in love fully and quickly, and give themselves uh, without reservation are more at risk because they're easier victims. They're not bad people. In fact, they're often lovely people. But the trick with getting in relationships with narcissists is you want to go slowly. Because if you go slowly, you'll see the problems. If you go too quickly, you're going to fall in love and it's going to be exciting and you're not going to see the problems until it's too late. So my advice is, you know, go slow. Go slow in relationships in general. It's going to keep you out of some trouble.
1: And what would be some of the warning signs, the clear warning signs that we should be looking for?
5: You know, with narcissism, there's this stuff that's, It's sort of apparent, you know, the materialism and the nice dress and the, you know, the the self-presentation and and different things like that. But often those qualities are very attractive. And so when we meet people who are narcissistic, I mean, when I meet people who are really narcissistic, I often just like them because they seem so charming and confident. Mm -hmm. And when I really like somebody, I always make that a warning sign. (laughs) But... But in in reality, the thing to do is look at somebody's track record. So if you're starting a relationship with somebody, look at their past relationships, look at their history. People who are narcissistic and self-centered or ego involved will hurt people and they will do it throughout their lives. People do not change that much. And so if you see a trail of destruction, you stay away from somebody. If you see somebody had loving relationships, you're like, that's a person who's capable of having loving relationships. So focus on the past more than what's put in front of you, because people are narcissistic or charming. I mean, that's part of the deal. So they're going to convince you, you know, that they're better than they are.
1: The book is The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Campbell and his work, you can visit KeithCampbell.com. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure speaking with you.
5: Oh, thank you. That was great.
1: This is
6: Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Self-confidence stemming from a belief in your worth, in your abilities, is a prerequisite to achievement. Your current view of yourself is the result of prior unconscious conditioning. Your future view of yourself can be the result of positive conditioning you consciously design. Affirmations are a powerful tool you can utilize to enhance your self-confidence and positive thinking. Your future success will be determined mainly by what you permit to enter and remain in your mind. Enhance your capabilities to achieve your goals by intentionally feeding your mind positive statements describing the person you want to be or become. Affirmation should describe which qualities, achievements, behaviors, or circumstances you want to possess. You can create your own affirmations or adopt them from quotations, scripture, family sayings, or other positive sources. If you use borrowed affirmations, make sure they align with your purpose and values. Affirmation should always be personal and a reflection of your goals. Here are six key points of what affirmations need in order to be effective. One, positive. Two, stated in the first person or present tense. Three, in the realm of your belief. Four, something you want to become rather than something you currently are. Five, related to your goals. And six, specific to you. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson at 732-705-5060 or visit star1professional.com.
1: A happy productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Doreen Steinland, an ICF certified coach who uses neuroscience in coaching to harness the power of our brains. As a transformational neurocoach, Doreen changes brains one thought at a time. Doreen is the founder of Living Full Life Coaching. She is here today to discuss positive affirmations: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Welcome, Doreen. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here.
1: So, Doreen, what are positive affirmations and why are they so important? What is so good about them? Yeah, so positive affirmations,
3: there's a big trend right now um, with positive affirmations to say good things to yourself, to say kind things to yourself, to manifest um, ideas of where you want yourself to be. And there's there's a lot of good about this, but there's also um, caution with this positive affirmation. And the more we learn about neuroscience, the more we see. Um, and, and first, I'll focus on the positive, the positive effects that we have are able to see in our brain. that it decreases stress it definitely they increase our well-being they open us up to possibilities to behavior change Um, they diminish negative feelings such as anxiety anger or impatience Um, they increase your self-esteem they help us find motivation and increase your productivity and in some cases even quit a bad habit so they're positive, right? These positive affirmations are a good thing for us. The key thing with positive affirmations is that we need to reflect and combine those positive affirmations with our core values. And, and when we do that, it, it becomes um, very beneficial to the brain. Our brain likes to connect things. So when we connect the positive affirmation with a value that we hold deeply, um, then it becomes a change agent and can be used for the positive. Definitely can raise your confidence also.
1: So the key then, Doreen, is to make sure that the affirmation is in alignment with the core value. Is that why sometimes people struggle? Because there's a, you know they're not matching up what, what's important to them with what they're telling themselves? Exactly. So here, here's an example. Like if I want to tell myself I'm a million-dollar business owner,
3: right? My brain knows right now that that is not true, right? But if I keep telling myself over and over again... The problem with that is it's possible that it then turns into um, uh, self condemnation and feelings of failure and, and self blame, right? And you see how that can turn around because it causes an internal conflict in our subconscious brain. Instead of saying, I'm a million dollar business owner, you might build in um, your values there, right? I'm the type of business owner that's resilient. I try new things and I adapt my actions so that I can run a successful business, right? So there I'm, I'm looking at values of flexibility, I'm looking at values of responsibility, maybe innovation. Or you could tell yourself something like, I am the type of business owner who believes in hard work and grit. That focuses on values of reliability, dependability. And there's all different ways that we could build our values into the positive affirmation so we don't struggle with your brain really
1: fighting with yourself. Well, I think that's such a great idea because I know a lot of people set those affirmations like you had mentioned i am a million dollar business owner and but if, if yeah. you don't believe that you are i can see that disconnect and that's really a wonderful example because when you don't use these affirmations properly you can have negative effects
3: yes yeah. so what's happening is you're when we're saying these positive affirmations we're really saying them at the conscious level right we're repeating them in our minds, but our subconscious has its own ideas and beliefs. So if the two are not connected, we have what's called cognitive dissonance. And it's really an internal war that that your brain is holding, your parts of your brain are holding against each other. And it really then just ups the ante and creates more pressure and more stress internally for you.
1: So is the idea then, Doreen, if you focus on those core values of being a hard worker or being giving or whatever it may be, you will achieve that end result because you're approaching it through the things that are important to you?
3: Yes, because our brain will always find what it's looking for, right? Mm-hmm. But it won't find it if there is a disconnect. If, if both parts of the subconscious and the conscious brain are not on the same page, it's going to be confused. What to look for, right? And it's going to try and prove, prove what the subconscious believes to be true, because that's really the pathway that that um, is automatic. So your brain will automatically go to that section, that 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 part, to prove yourself. You were, that's not true. You're not a million dollar coach, right? Right. You're not a million. You don't have a million dollar business. It's going to look for all the evidence to show you why you're failing in that arena right because it's a mismatch so when we're creating these positive um, affirmations we need to be intentional about it and really go to the core of who we are what we want to accomplish what we believe and coaches definitely help with this process of weeding through you know what it what it is that you think and believe and what's important to you so that your thoughts can match your subconscious and your conscious thoughts can match up.
1: Doreen, thank you so much for joining us. This was really such a great conversation because I hear so many people say, I'm doing positive affirmations and I'm not seeing any results. And, and I think that this is really such a great key message and a great takeaway for people to learn how to incorporate these affirmations into their lives. So if you would like to learn more about Doreen and her work, you can visit livingfullifecoaching.com Doreen, once again, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me.